The poet Thomas Gray said, Poetry is thoughts that breathe and words that burn. Peter Reynolds wrote and illustrated a children's picture book titled Ish, and I do mean as in I-S-H, Ish. In the book, a boy, Ramon, becomes frustrated by his inability to draw a realistic vase of flowers. Each time Ramon tries to draw an image, he crumples up his attempt and throws it away. Ramon's older brother is part of the problem, mocking Ramon's artistic ability and causing him to eventually stop drawing altogether. Yet behind the scenes, Ramon's younger sister has collected each crumpled attempt, smoothed it out, and displayed the whole collection in a stunning array on her wall. Ramon's discovery of the dramatic display of his multiple attempts to depict a vase of flowers causes him to feel free, renewed, and eager to create with the sensibility of ish. Ramon even creates poemish poetry. Quote, His ish art inspired ish writing. He wasn't sure if he was writing poems, but he knew they were poemish. And that's from Reynolds. Poemish representations of research are characterized by exhibiting features of poetry and making an effort to blend the aesthetics of poetry and scientific research into something that is poem-like or poemish. So it's within this safe space that new poets may work aesthetically in research. This podcast on research poetry in the series Publish and Persevere, which are podcast out from my text writing and representing qualitative research, is part of trying to create this ish safe space. If you want to know when the next podcast is posted or find previous podcasts, infographics, PDFs with qualitative information and more, make your way to my website, marialayman.com, and opt into my communications. In the early 90s, Laurel Richardson wrote, Writing up interviews as poems honors the speaker's pauses, repetitions, alliterations, narrative strategies, rhythms, and so on. Poetry may actually better represent the speaker than the practice of quoting snippets in prose does. Transcription poetry or data poetry is the major form of research poetry and what much of the methodological literature is comprised of, discussions about how to create that. In this poetry, the researcher draws directly from interview transcripts, observations, and other data sources. Laurel Richardson advises listening for repetitions, rhythms, pauses, breath points, and emphasis in the transcript. The work of the researcher then is to listen carefully to where the participant takes breaks in an interview and interpret these breaks as punctuation marks, new lines, line spaces, and so on. By paying attention to the rhythms contained in the participant's speech, researchers can capture the rhythms through visual poetic representations of that speech. Research poets will wish to use punctuation or lack of punctuation along with the white space and line length to slow down or speed up the reading process to convey meaning and context. Lynn Butler-Kaisberg describes the process as a nonlinear one in which she begins to, quote, nugget words and phrases from the chained prose, unquote. By chained prose here, she would mean transcriptions. Butler-Kaisberg's use of the word nugget has a lot of value for us. It underscores the identification the researcher will want to identify the most salient, valuable words and phrases, extracting these nuggets from transcripts as though we were miners, panning and sifting through words for small pieces of gold. Transcript or data research poems are accepted in qualitative research as valid representations of the research participants' experiences. As Robert Frost reminds us, writing a poem 
is discovering. Rich Furman was the first to challenge qualitative researchers to attempt to create research poetry that was formed. Formed poetry may be partially understood as poetry with constraints. A constraint is any rule a poet imposes on their writing, such as a line structure, meter, rhythm, or pattern. When a particular set of constraints is followed over a period of time, the set of rules may become a specific form of poetry, such as a sonnet, haiku, or limerick. Most qualitative research poetry, until Furman's stimulating formed poetry challenge, was free verse. Furman drew on Japanese poetic forms, including the tanka, to illustrate his experiences. I want to give you an example of an ode uh, written by James Hodges. He was in a course with me during the pandemic where we all chose to write poetry about our pandemic experience. James is a graduate of my research methods program. Thank you, James, so much for sharing this. Greetings, all. I just want to first say thank you so much for the opportunity to speak on this podcast and talk more about my work. So firstly, the uh, background to an irregular ode to the chair is that when um, the pandemic really picked up in March 2020, and we were all instructed to go to virtual learning and working, um, we had to stop our many ethnographies. I was in an educational ethnography class with Maria, and um, we had to stop our projects because most of them we had to go sit at a site and um, observe and t- and gather data that way. But we had to switch and we decided to do a section on research poetry in which she introduced me to the idea of an ode, which I decided to use um, to describe this chair that I really um, felt connected to um, at my desk at work while um, you know working at home during the pandemic. So I wanna present to you all and a regular ode to the chair. A silky gray blending with the velvety darkness yet standing strong against the golden blaze of the daytime. Freckles of the metal, metals you are mixed with, dancing in trickles of light, shine through the blinds of the window. The blinds blocking the light to steal some of the joy of your embrace with the sun in a fit of jealousy. Long, strong rods adorned by sweat, gentle enough not to pierce soft, medium brown flesh weakened by sedentary days, but strong enough to endure the 300 plus pounds it weathers every day. 300 plus pounds of anxiety. The scribbles and tiny utterances of to-dos, what-ifs, hows, and whys. The mighty rods wrap in an embrace, a hug, a holding. 300 plus pounds of frustration. The staff says more cuts, more planning for the hypothetical. Dry replies and check-ins in which nothing is said, but everything is said. The chair is rocked back, but the solid foundation swings back with the rock. The chair swings back, but pushes forward. A fresh breath to say, always keep going, reminding that forward is the only option. 300 plus pounds of laughter. Friends share sweet wine and memories. Reminiscences turn to shared chuckles and bellows. The laughter vibrates along the strong metal rods, laughing back. When the bed folded under pressure and couldn't handle the sleepless night, the chair with this 24-hour sign was there. It loved the blue haze of the laptop screen against the crisp dark room. When the sofa couldn't handle the rattles of restlessness, the chair welcomed the hum of jittering legs and feet. Oh, to be a chair in a global pandemic, the forgotten essential worker. James, every time I read or hear you read this poem, I'm just absolutely amazed. Thank you so much for helping me learn about the isolation 
uh, yet amazing experiences that were occurring during the pandemic. In the textbook, I review how to create many forms of poetry, along with odes, including collaborative poetry, counter-critical poetry, collage, blackout, epistle poetry, so epistle letter writing, but contemporary letter writing poetry, such as typewriter poetry, email poetry, Twitter poetry. But due to time, I'll focus the rest of the podcast on ideas for forging research poetry. To write poemish research poetry, one must first read extensively and regularly. Read, read, read. I can't say it often enough. Unfortunately, though, for some researchers I work with, the idea of reading poetry brings up very negative past experiences. These experiences include a feeling of intimidation, a sense of the unknown or the indecipherable, or an experience of alienation. So how to start? A blogger from a seemingly defunct blog, Reading While Female, had some practical tips that I appreciated. She said, just enjoy the poetry. Just enjoy it. Paraphrase the poem into simple explanations that would create a roadmap of the poem, of where it begins, where it travels, and then where it ends. So research poets should read research poetry, of course, but more importantly, they should read literary poetry. One enriching strategy I have found to help overcome a reluctance to engage with poetry is to join in a poem a day virtual email. So they would send you an email of a poem every day or purchase a poem of the day book and you can read a poem every day through these books. When one of the poems you read inspires you, do some reflexive work around it. Who is the author? What era and context were they writing from? What other poetry have they written that you may wish to read? What about the poem appealed to you? Was the poem formed? If so, how? What poetic devices did the poet employ? How might your poetry be affected by this poem? The reading of poetry, of course, sparks the writing of poetry. So, for example, I had a deep desire to represent the painful and unexpected death of my mother, and I was floundering in too much emotion to write when I first read End of April by Phyllis Levine, a poem that expresses the inexpressible. Levine's poem was a reminder of how powerfully nature conveys human experience. So I went back into my own garden, poetically, where I can never spend enough time to consider death. I'll read my poem now. Hail. We made it through the first hailstorm unscathed. Just blocks up the street, leaves were torn to shreds. Blossoms battered down. In my yard, red matador tulips waved their capes jauntily, daring any bull to charge. You stood a day after the surgery, squeezed the therapist's hand until wincing she cried, stop. The second storm was not so merciful. All signs of spring stamped out in her path, hail so thick it seemed to snow upon the ground, the flowers, and you, cut down. Crouched beneath the catalpa tree, digging dirt, deadheading spent beauty at her feet, I glanced skyward time to time at the budless, ravaged limbs. How you loved a tree with scented flowers, bean pods, and a brilliant choir of leaves. The flowerless boughs mourn, even as I rub a dirt-crusted hand across my eyes. Ideally, write a poem down as it comes to you without stopping or getting interrupted. Consider any illusions the poem may benefit from you doing 
some research around and adding, is there anywhere alliteration is occurring and you could amplify it? Should lines of the poem end on a different word? What does the white space, the space surrounding the poem, look like? Then, as you move from writing, you'll want to revise. One way to tell if someone is a poet, people say, is by their overriding need to continually revise a poem. As I placed published poems of my own into this chapter, I continued to tweak them, and I've been at readings by published authors where they'll stop in the middle of a poem and change it uh, in front of you during the reading. Poetry is such a compressed form that every word, punctuation mark, and blank space matters. Some poets have stated that they do little revision. However, I think as research poets, we're often in a position of learning art while needing to have a heavy focus on research. So for this reason, I strongly recommend close attention to revisions. Revision usually occurs after the initial outpouring of the poetry has been saved in a form where it can be backed and backed up and edited. I find it helps to put the poem away for a little while, and then you revisit the poem. Your, your emotions will not be so intense at that time, and then you can use a more critical editorial eye. Due to both my demands at work and the need to be prepared mentally to work with highly sensitive topics, such as death or loss, I may come back to some poems or a series of poems time after time over several years. As you revisit poems, save former drafts and print them out or position them beside the new draft so you can see different aspects that you've changed and decide which one you prefer. Change the poem to single space so you can see how it may look when it's published. If you are submitting to a journal that is printed in two columns, consider how the poem works in that form. Part of a, re a revision includes reading the poem out loud both to yourself and when you're ready to others. Creating a research poetry writing group clearly would be invaluable with that. If you want to know more about when the next podcast is posted, head your way to my website, marialame.com, and opt into my communications. Khalil Gibran said, Poetry is a deal of joy and pain and wonder with a dash of the dictionary. Research poetry has the potential to powerfully convey experience in their essence that capture and stimulate the senses, providing new understandings. When we commit to crafting poems, we must also commit to reading poetry and to the close revision of our poetry. Research poets are creating welcoming, poemish spaces for researchers to contribute to. Will you join in?